You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Talking now about uh, Hazelwood Power Station closing, um, that was announced uh, that that was um, going to close. It's been expected for really about 10 years and um, that closure of the power station together with the blackout in South Australia have shone a very bright light on Australia's unpreparedness for the inevitable move away from coal-fired generation and the transition to clean energy has been something that has been spoken about for very many years now and uh, it's kind of weird isn't it that we've been caught on the hop and uh, wondering now if we're going to see more energy market work done to smooth over the next shift which is going to happen um, who knows when in the next few years we'll see more coal-fired power stations really end, uh, you know, I suppose reach their use-by date. And Cam Walker has uh, been looking at this for a long time. He's with Friends of the Earth and joins us monthly on The Grapevine and together with many others have been calling for governments to focus on the future of the 50-year-old Hazelwood plant and uh, working together with community groups and workers in the valley has been working up a transition plan. And it's really great to have you with us, Cam, because you have been on the ground for a long time talking about these issues and the announcement really is inevitable um, but there's been very little jumping for joy I can as I, I can understand people aren't sort of celebrating the closure of Hazelwood it's seen as something that we should have been better prepared for yes you're absolutely right um, we've had a number of occasions where the plant was likely to close down back in 2010 and then in 2012 through a federal scheme and as you said in the intro it's more than 50 years old it's just it's ready to go it's our dirtiest coal-fired power station in the whole country um, you know it's riddled with asbestos it's just really got to go and despite all the work of the green movement over the years this is basically a business decision by the majority owner um, a company called ng which are based in france so we all knew it was coming uh, but it was still a little bit of a shock i was down in the valley on friday and then back there yesterday and uh yep i think it's fair to say there's a you know real there's a sense of resignation you know um over the valley and people knew it was coming but that doesn't take away any of the pain for the people that have lost their jobs no, of course not. And I, I wonder now, is it work that is the main issue in the Latrobe Valley now, wondering where those jobs are going to come from? Uh, yes, well, that's a big part of it. I mean, every conversation you have in the Latrobe Valley goes back to privatisation because when Jeff Kennett was the Premier, he privatised what had been the State Electricity Commission and that led to, you know, a huge number of job losses overnight and that still has ramifications for the valley and comes into many conversations and people in the valley have a really long memory of that. This is different in that it's one of four plants closed down and it was, as we know, very much overdue. So um, the company and the governments, the federal and state governments are trying to kind of soften the blow um, the, in, in terms of keeping people on. So the good news is that the site will be fully rehabilitated. Um, there is a proposal they might turn the open cut into a lake and we're not convinced that's a good idea but that's a conversation for later on. But what it means is that two of the 550 direct employees and the 300 contractors 200 to 250 of them will be kept on for up to 12 years to do the dismantle and the rehabilitation. So that at least softens the blow to a degree. And as you mentioned, Cam, I mean, the, the closure of Hazelwood ultimately was a was a business decision by the majority owner, Engie. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, given that we've seen this coming for quite some time, that the government um, has seen this coming for quite some time, is there a sense that, um, I mean, I guess we need to do a whole lot more uh, currently to make sure those workers who were at Hazelwood have um, future jobs, not simply in the coal industry, but in the renewable sector potentially as well? 
Absolutely, and renewables probably will never be, you know, a, a driving uh, industry in the valley, although there is some pretty substantial geothermal resource there that's actually under the coal, and part of the reason it's such a good resource is because the coal kind of acts as a, you know, electric blanket over the top of it. Um, so one of our arguments is we need to spend the $100 million that we need to do, to figure out if that's going to be commercially viable. If it is, and, and geothermal is baseload energy, of course, because you can tap it at any time, that will be fantastic because that's same sector jobs. Um, there's also some interest in uh, small-scale uh, renewables in the valley and certainly in surrounding areas like the Streslecki Ranges where the wind resource is really good. But then there's also uh, energy retrofitting because, of course, the energy you don't use is the best form of energy. So there are proposals for an energy retrofit of all, say, the public housing, the social housing in the valley that would create hundreds of jobs and really reduce the amount of energy we need. So the future of the valley, there's no one, you know, silver bullet that will transition it. It's about a whole range of new businesses and a whole range of new activities. And of course, as the mines start to close and the air clears up, the fact is the Latrobe Valley is a really beautiful place. You've got Borbor on one side, Streslecki on the other. You've got, you know, the Gippsland Lakes just down the road and you've got South Gippsland just over the mountains. It's an amazing place to live and I think that it will become more popular as a destination uh, in terms of people moving out of Melbourne and certainly it's got huge potential around food processing because Gippsland is a great place for agriculture and also for tourism, nature-based tourism. And um, we've, we've seen the federal government put up money, um, $43 million, I understand, and Victorian, uh, Victoria's government, $266 million, um, to support uh, the, that community in the Latrobe Valley uh, into the future. But is this likely to be enough? And I suppose the, the big question I have is this kind of bailout enough of a plan for this, the energy transition that we're facing now, Cam? No, it isn't. Um, I do have to say the $266 million from the state government is fantastic. Um, there's the Latrobe Valley Authority, which has been established, which will manage the transition. So its job is to diversify the economy and kind of manage the changes that are coming. So hopefully this is the beginning of that really forward-thinking look to well, what happens with Luoyang Bay, you know, from when it eventually goes and Yulon and the others. So we're heartened by that. We're really heartened by the fact that, you know, the Premier is clearly taken ownership of this issue. It's not just something he's going to, you know, shunt off to, to someone else. He will be personally involved in this. And I think that that's essential. Um, as we had a briefing with the Premier on Friday and we said, look, the work you did around family violence and domestic violence over the last two years has been fantastic for our state. And we want to see the same leadership with the Valley. We need you to really seize this and start to, you know, drive the transition and not just leave the Valley to be the victim of market forces, which is what's happened here. So we do feel good about that. We feel heartened also that the feds have put the $43 million in. We weren't sure how much they'd put in. And we're also heartened that um, basically NG have said, yeah, we, you know, we will pay out all our workers properly and we will we'll rehabilitate the mine. Unfortunately, there are just many, many mine sites around the country that have not been rehabilitated properly. And there are concerns about the bonds for really big projects like this, where if you run a mine, you have to put money aside for the rehabilitation. And in Victoria, that's historically not enough money for this type of job so um, it's good that NG just haven't attempted to you know cut and run all three key players have come to the table and we know that that Hazelwood um, is one of the older and, and certainly one of the most dirtiest um, coal power stations going around but how much impact does does it have closing one power station such as Hazelwood on overall CO2 emissions can 
Oh, it's quite substantial. I think um, overall, in terms of the national electricity market, Hazelwood is worth about you know four percent of all the greenhouse gas emissions in the country, which is quite substantial. It's about a quarter of the energy uh, in Victoria at this point, so that's you know going to have a really you know substantial uh, impact on air quality and, and 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 greenhouse gases in terms of reduction. In the background, we have the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, which is actually restarting the development of large scale renewables like wind uh, in the state after the coalition basically stopped that industry when they were in power. So that will be ramping up a whole lot of new electricity um, over the next eight years. So, you know, that's really heartening. Uh, so we do think this is the beginning of the transition. You know, we've been talking about it for, for ever, basically the need to listen to climate science and transition rapidly away from our reliance on coal. And this is actually the start of it. It's, it's not been a government decision. It's been a market decision. But we need to acknowledge the significance of this moment and we need to plan for the future closures that are going to come. Um, the people that, that you guys have been working with, how positive they feel for the future? Is there a sense that there is, there is going to be a transition and it's going to be a good one for the Latrobe Valley? Uh, look, I think there's a lot of cynicism in the valley. If you think about it, um, for years and years and years, the companies have been coming in saying, we're going to come up with this great new technology to make coal carbon friendly, you know, and greenhouse friendly, and we're going to put the gases underground, and we're going to come up with, you know, coal to oil projects and coal to fertiliser projects. And, you know, I don't think anyone believes that anymore. We've wasted hundreds of millions of dollars on research into these technologies, and they're still not ready to go. So I think there's cynicism about change, and people will kind of believe it when they actually see it when jobs are created and that's why we're saying the government really needs to kind of balance this between getting some early runs on the board that is real jobs being created in the valley in the next couple of months plus also doing the longer term transitioning work so you know really this will be judged probably in in the coming two years i think we'll have a pretty clear sense of whether it's going to create real jobs now or whether it's you know just another kind of pie in the sky scheme and um I think the government is aware of that. They need to deliver. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, we, we will tell in coming months. And I think, I mean, one, if we, we go to kind of the bigger picture in the national electricity market that uh, that we rely on, really, it's all linked together, Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, Victoria, Tasmania, and we've seen South Australia have a bit of a, a rocky ride recently. And I wonder, uh, with this transition, Cam, whether we're going to see... Uh, energy demand and energy prices become an issue again i know we've seen gas prices go up power prices go up uh we've been it's been sort of tipped that we're going to see power prices go up by about four percent between four and eight percent uh now that hazelwood's closed what do you think we can do about that uh, and to try and i suppose protect energy consumers from from paying higher prices um, I think we are going to need government intervention there. There is what you'd have to call price gouging in the wholesale market. Uh, you know, the spot price of electricity varies depending on demand and also the supply at any point in time. I think government really needs to, you know, grapple with that one. I think also people in housing where, you know, they're burning energy because there's no insulation or they're, they're using cheap and, and very energy-consuming devices. There's a social dimension to this. We really need a, a, a retrofitting 
program for all low uh, star rated houses across Victoria, particularly starting with social housing and public housing. Um, there's the ideological aspect to this. So with South Australia, the storm was still happening and already the anti-wind people were out saying, oh, it was the fault of renewables. So we're going to see more of that. And being quite frank, I think the response of the Victorian coalition to all of this has been disappointing. And they're really talking up the fact that there will be price increases. And, you know, I think what we need at this point is to move beyond party politics to get everyone around the table working together to make sure this transition works and to make sure that the, the cost of living increases are managed. And I, I do think the Victorian government is seeking to do that. Um, and I would hope that the coalition would also come to the table and, and work in a really non-partisan kind of way with the government of the day. And I just want to briefly, in the time we've got left, Cam, head over to the US. Of course, the presidential election's coming up this week, in case um, no one had heard about it, coming up this Wednesday, our time. But, um, I mean, environmental issues haven't really figured prominently in the presidential race so far. But one, I guess, grassroots campaign that's caught a lot of people's attention, I know here in Australia and more broadly as well, is the um, kind of standoff at uh, the Standing Rock Reservation in the US. I wonder if you can give us a bit of a snapshot of what's going on with campaigners there. Yeah, this is an incredible campaign. It's basically about a pipeline that will take crude oil from North Dakota. So if you can visualise the United States, it's kind of, you know, to the northeast of the uh, northwest sorry, northeast of the Rocky Mountains at the edge of the Great Plains there and we'll take um, the crude oil about 1,800 kilometres right across the top of the country near the Canadian border to Illinois, uh, just near Chicago. And um, it's being built very rapidly. It's called the Dakota Access Pipeline. It's worth something like 3.7 billion US dollars. It's a huge project. Um, but unfortunately, it goes very close to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, which is near a place called Bismarck in North Dakota. Um, and uh, it appears that that the Standing Rock tribe were not properly consulted. Now, they have a treaty with the federal government, unlike here where we don't have treaty with Indigenous people. Many Indigenous nations, they have treaty with, with federal governments. Um, however, they're generally uh, ignored or undermined. So this is becoming a real test of the treaty, the, the, you know, the standing of the treaty, and the pipeline has actually been res, uh, resisted in court uh, by the Standing Rock tribe. Uh, but since... April this year, there's been uh, ongoing protests, physical blockades of, of the pipeline works, and there's been a series of camps, there's been 400 arrests, and it's been uh, a really remarkable thing. There have been so many people there, there have been thousands of people there, there's been a huge number of arrests, and there's been a very militarised police response. So I think, once again, as with the shootings of, say, African Americans, uh, has really heightened, you know, the conflict that often exists within the United States. This has highlighted the way majority north america treats uh, and relates to indigenous peoples and how is it involving the candidates uh cam i i understand that um donald trump actually has a, a direct interest in this pipeline yeah yes uh, so the company that's doing it is called energy transfer partners um and trump not only is heavily invested in this company he's also received donations from them for his election campaign i think the figure was either one or two hundred thousand dollars us so you know not a not an insubstantial amount and he also has personal links with key people in the in the uh company that's doing the pipeline um so it's hard not to see him as supporting it i don't think he's actually said anything about this and i i suspect that's because well um it's you know it's not going to look good to say i'm investing in this and yet you know indigenous elders are being uh, maced and and shot at uh, you know and tasered and uh having rubber bullets fired at them so it wouldn't be a good look even for someone like trump um 
Hillary Clinton, as far as I know, doesn't have a connection with uh, the project, but has been pretty quiet. Um, and, you know, as you said, climate change and environment has been pretty much missing from this entire um, election. And it certainly, I think it got a three-second mention in one of the presidential debates. So it's just been missing in action in terms of this uh, particular election campaign. Well, it looks like something we should watch into the future, though, with those federal responsibilities to the treaty. And it's really great to have you on again, Cam. We'll catch you again in a month. Thank you. Talk to you next time. Uh, Cam Walker there from Friends of the Earth um, joins us monthly here on The Grapevine. It, it was only a few months ago when the whole of Australia was talking about the safety of Aboriginal children in detention in the Northern Territory and now we have a Royal Commission underway. And in Victoria, our Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People has released an important report which shows an increase by 70% of Koori kids in out-of-home care and this has happened just over, th- uh, over a three-year period. And uh, these really big... And and important issues really go to the heart of who we are. And Muriel Bamflett is uniquely placed to speak about what's happening in the NT and here. She's CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and she's been incredibly busy recent times and it's amazing and great to have you back in, Muriel. Yep, thank you. And um, I suppose we let's start with the NT. You recently gave evidence to the Royal Commission and um, in reading through what you had to say, there's a lot of interest in the NT in what is happening in Victoria. And I wonder if you can kind of talk about um, why they might be interested in what we're doing here? I think that um, Victoria is well regarded with regard to um, the work that we've been doing in child protection and I guess the, you know, in Victoria we really have a strong commitment to self-determination and empowering Aboriginal and I think that in the Northern Territory where, you know, um, 75% of the children that are in care are Aboriginal, um, there certainly has to be a greater focus in the Northern Territory. But one of the things that I really did implore of the Northern Territory when I went and gave evidence is the very thing that we're fighting for in Victoria is for a strong cultural base for our kids. In Northern Territory, they already have it and um, aren't investing in it, aren't using it as a treatment as you know, and, and restoring it and keeping it a vibrant and alive. But um, the complexities in the Northern Territory are well and truly way you know, different to Victoria. And important, though, was the message around Aboriginal people can do child welfare and so that was why you know I sort of talked about what we deliver down here all the programs and services that we deliver because the Victorian government has invested a lot in child welfare. And I I think um, what I also took from your evidence Muriel was um, that your concern for Aboriginal families being blamed for their children ending up in the juvenile justice system and uh, why, why is that happening? Why are families blamed rather than supported? I think that they've got some really big issues around poverty and neglect in the Northern Territory. When we did the Northern Territory inquiry in 2010, uh, one of the big observations, we saw many um, communities where up to 30 people were living in houses. And, you know, my point in giving evidence was around how do you become a good parent when you're living in a house with 30 people? How do you actually learn about good parenting? How do you protect your children? How do you actually, um, you know, be able to um, get a job when you can't, when there's no jobs? And so coming up in those communities with, you know, dealing with the 
absolute poverty, the high levels of violence, the high levels of truancy. Um, I think thinking that you can keep dealing with those issues in isolation without working with the community, without engaging the community and having the community take ownership. And, and you know, as I gave evidence, there's um, one Tiwi Island, 83 services fly in on a monthly basis. That's very much a do-for approach, people doing for you. It doesn't empower the community. It doesn't give the community any skills in being able to address some of those big issues. So it means that everybody's doing for you instead of you um, being able to do that work. And I think it's important that we build the belief that Aboriginal people can do that work. But it's hard work and it challenges you. And so, you know, self-determination isn't something that you take lightly. It is very hard work. It means making the tough calls. It means around, you know, taking responsibility for child safety, for levels of juvenile justice, for drug and alcohol. It means absolutely taking responsibility. And, I mean, you mentioned that we do things quite differently here in Victoria uh, in relation to um, Aboriginal child welfare than happens in the Northern Territory. But this report that's um, just come out uh, shows that there's been a 70% rise in the number of children removed from families in just over three years, which is um, quite a damning statistic. So what's going on here in Victoria? Well, I think there's a couple of reports that um, Andrew has put out and the one that he put out that didn't get a lot of media attention was the lack of compliance with the Aboriginal Child Placement Principle. So when you look at those 1,700 Aboriginal children that are currently in the system, of those, only 10% are placed with the Aboriginal community. Now, that means that, you know, 170 of those 1,700 children are with Aboriginal carers. So what's the future like for those children? We know the effects of, you know, being taken away from your culture, know know the effects of, you know, the stolen generations, but we're not learning from that. And so how do we actually build the infrastructure? How do we build and how do we ensure children stay at home? Obviously, the best place is for children to be home, but we have got an absolute absence of reunification programs you know being able to work with families intensively to keep children safe and you know the ultimate word is that Aboriginal people don't want children just be in the community just to be there it's about safety we really want to make sure that children are safe but given the you know um, 90% of children come into care for family violence what's our response to family violence most children come into care because of poverty do we have a response to poverty no and why are so many aboriginal people overrepresented in poverty why are we so so poor what's the outlook around education jobs and you know i know i'm pinning a lot on the treaty process but i think that we can create a hope and a vision for aboriginal people that we can you know get better access to jobs better and create a better future and I, I want to talk a little bit more in a minute about what's happening um, with the Victorian government with a treaty process. But um, I, I don't have a quote from Andrew Giacomosso, um yep. Children's Commissioner, in front of me. But I did hear him say that um, in the instance of, of one child, it's like, you know, he was asking why is this child with a non-Aboriginal family, why not? Uh, and um, with uh, family and uh, the answer from from the state government was well we couldn't find family and then he did it like a five second search on Facebook and found yep. the grandmother yep. who would more than happy you know wanted the, the child to, to be with her and I, and I think is this kind of scenario common because that seems kind of outrageous when I when I heard him say that that that's yeah. possible um, you know? it's not 
sometimes it's not as simple that when there's a notification for an Aboriginal child you ha- or for any child, it's very difficult to find a placement. And so finding a placement, um, a lot of our Aboriginal families already are look, caring for a number of children. Um, the age population is, you know, we don't have a lot of um, ageing pe- um, populations, so we have a very young population. So the high numbers of children that are coming into the system, and a lot of people now aren't putting up their hand to become carers because these are not easy kids. These are kids with quite complex issues. And if we do, even if we give it to the grandmother, we really need to make sure that we support grandmother and that, you know, mum's, grandmother gets all the resources. Quite often you take on the um, a, a, your grandchild and you get no supports. And it's quite hard. As I said, these are children that have been through huge amounts of violence, huge amount of neglect. They're acting out. They've got to, you know, be involved in. And there's a lot of standards that still apply to children in out-of-home care. And so grandparents really struggle with, you know, they've already raised their children. They're, they're getting older and here now they've got to start all over again. And I'm not saying that they don't want to do it, but it's just you need to be able to support them. And um, you mentioned treaty and uh, I understand uh, there is a, a series of seminars taking place at the moment. Mm-hmm. Maybe tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, um, the Victorian government is running um, a series of consultations across the state and so they've already been to Mildura, to Swan Hill and to Bendigo. Um, Wednesday there's um, a forum at the Aboriginal Advancement League here in Melbourne um, and so they're really trying to um, get from the community what a representative structure will look like um, it, it's in, in very, very, very clear that it's not driven by government. It's driven by community. So Richard Franklin um, is, you know, taking those um, conversations very seriously and engaging the community. And so a lot of the conversations have really been around um, who's going to represent, how are they going to represent, and what 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 are they going to be asking, and how will we make sure that we get um, that the best interests of all people across the state get represented if we do have a representative body. And we often hear about government consultations happening often to justify a policy. We heard about them Mm. in relation to the Northern Territory um, intervention, for example, and there was a lot of criticism about the the level of engagement in those consultations and the way that the responses from the community were listened to or or not listened to in the um, design of that policy. But what's different about this process that the Victorian government's engaging in in relation to those consultations? What's making it more meaningful? I think there's just a lot of interest. I think um, our people um, for years have advocated for a treaty. So um, it's always challenging to get to um, the most disadvantaged and a lot of our people are so disempowered. And so we're really trying to work hard to ensure we hear the voice of all communities. And and I think having someone like Richard Franklin, who's got huge respect, um, you know, being a music, you know, film writer, musician, all, all of those. He's done a lot of work and, and did the Royal Com- um, the consultation on the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1991. So he knows the community. Um, he's working very hard, though. It's still very hard. But, um, you know, and there's a, a forum that will culminate in December that will bring together the whole state and, and be able to give that evidence back. I think consultation is very hard. Um, and how do you engage? It's more about engagement. How do we engage? Who do we need to engage to ensure we get hear the voice of all of our people? And how, how if at all, is this feeding into the, I think, ongoing discussions around the referendum into constitutional recognition? Are these quite separate 
No, I don't processes. think they're, they're exclusive. I think that they're inclusive, but at the moment, most um, you know, most Victorians are probably the most um, you know sort of um, loudest around saying that constitutional recognition. Um, we need a treaty first, and um, there's always been the talk of a treaty. There's many times that a treaty has been spoken about with Aboriginal people and not delivered on, and so a lot of people. Um, Personally, my view is is that, you know, the Constitution, until you see the words, um, how can you know what's in it? And I would like to know what forms the basis of constitutional recognition. And we've already got it in the Victorian Constitution and now we're into the next step around treaty. And, and so I think it's really important if... If we're going to get constitutional recognition um, accepted within the Aboriginal community, we've got to know what's what it means and what the words are. The national campaign um, mural that you can tell us about um, called Family Matters, maybe let us know um, how, I suppose, VACA works in nationally as well. Um, yes, the Secretariat for National Aboriginal and Child Care Agency is, is um, an Aboriginal organisation that was established um, in 1997. So it, it really sort of st- started out of um, a small group of Aboriginal and Child Care Agencies um, meeting together across the nation. And so um, just recently they've announced um, or brought together a, a number of um, organisations from across the nation. So fam- um, there's a number of peaks and statewide organisations that have joined together so VCOS, VCOS, Families Australia and so some of those bigger organisations. So there's 120 of those organisations that have come together and they're um, um, got a campaign together and it's called Strong Community Strong Culture, Strong Children and they're launch, formally launching that um, this Wednesday on the 9th at Parliament House. They're all in Canberra at the moment lobbying with the different ministers, so Linda Burney um, there's, there's a number, number of politicians that they're meeting with to and, and the overall aim is to get reduce the numbers of children the overrepresentation of Aboriginal children. They've set themselves 2040 as a time frame. They're actually starting with this national launch. They're hoping to engage COAG, really um, struggling with, you know, getting particularly the Commonwealth Government on board. So it's up to, it'll be up, they'll be establishing a jurisdictional working group um, in each of the states and territories to start to look at how do we actually drive down. They'll produce a report card on Wednesday. So that report card looks pretty damning at the moment. So hopefully we can start to see it going up rather than going down. And um, just before you go, um, there's a, an event that people can get along to uh, at Black Dot Gallery. It's an art mentoring program. It sounds really yeah, exciting. it's um, been put on. It's a number of we have a number of Aboriginal children that um, participate in an art, art mentoring program. So we use art as a treatment, art as you know, um, a, an opportunity to. Do, to get children and young people to express through art um, what, what's going on in their lives and be able to um, treat that. And so we, we use elders and so Marie Clark, other elders have been involved in the project and they so the, the young people have produced paintings, they've produced sculpture, tote bags, cards and cushion covers and so those things will... Uh, uh, obviously be available for sale but it's on between 6.30 and 8.30 um, as you said at the exhibition um, at the Black Dot Gallery.
on the, the 17th, 17th of November. November. Yep, so not very far away and um, very well placed just before Christmas too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's no accident. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. in. Muriel Bamflett, CEO of Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency. We get her as much as we can uh, in on this show. She's involved in so many things and speaking this morning about her evidence given to the Northern Territory Royal Commission into uh, juvenile justice up there and also uh, speaking about the um, uh, the report uh, always will be Koori Children Report that came out from the Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People and you can get more information about all those things uh, online and um, yeah, urge you to check out what VAC is up to as well. Thanks for coming in. Thank Thanks. you. At this time of year, many thousands of school and university students from all around the country are neck deep in exams. And as anyone who's done exams would know, they can be pretty stressful and unsettling experiences, often giving rise to anxiety uh, that the study you've done just isn't quite enough or that you might mysteriously bomb out or go blank when you sit down and open the exam paper. Dr. Jared Hovarth is an expert in the field of educational neuroscience at the University of Melbourne. And we've invited him on to help us unpack what actually goes on in the brain in these high-stress exam situations and also how we might be able to better train ourselves for these settings. Jared, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Hey, thanks for having me on. So to become a specialist in educational neuroscience, I imagine you must have done your fair share of exams. Have you ever had that kind of mind-blank experience? Oh, my goodness. Um, oddly enough, no. I think <laughs> to get to my to this level in academia, you have to really love school. So I'm one of those people who just flourished in that environment. So I do, I, every once in a while I'll get a mind blank, but typically it's when I'm giving a presentation more so than when I'm taking an exam. During exam times, that's when I, that was my stride right there. And is is it down to just the amount of study you put in, though? Because, I mean, I've heard of people who've worked extremely hard and, and thought they've prepared as best they can for an exam, but got in there and just kind of freaked out and haven't really been able to, to you know, produce the best work that they could do. No. It, it has, has nothing to do with smarts or preparation in terms of how much you know. It has everything to do with kind of interpretation of the situation. So you can imagine some people look at an exam, especially these high-stake ones where they say, okay, if you don't get this exam, you're not going to college, you're not getting a job, you're not getting a wife, your life is over. These huge stakes exams, you could assume some people will look at that as a challenge and go, okay, I'm going to kick its butt. And other people will see that as a threat, as, oh, my goodness, this is a danger to me. If I do not do well on this, I'm done. And it's the people who see the test as a threat, as a stressful, threatening situation. Those are the people who tend to suffer the mind blanks during the exam time. So it's, it has nothing to do with what you know. It has everything to do with what you feel that test represents for you. And, and maybe talk us through what's actually happening in the brain, then, if it's a threat that is kind of triggering a, a complete blank so so we uh, i kind of like to think of it like we have a, a number of different memory systems but there's two really important ones so we'll say one is your working memory so that's kind of your 10 second window into the world right now so the reason you can understand what i'm saying is because you remember what i said a couple seconds ago that's your working memory it's this kind of updating thing you also have this deep memory, this kind of long-term memory where you can access stuff. So if I say, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? You dive into working memory or deep memory and you pull that up and now you can talk about it. So what happens during a mind blank, during stress, is so you go into this test and all of a sudden you perceive of it as 
of a threat. Exactly the same way as if you saw a bear or a lion or a tiger standing right in front of you. Your brain reacts to it the same exact way. It kicks out a bunch of chemicals. And one of those chemicals is norepinephrine. That goes into your frontal lobe, the front part of your brain, which is essentially where your working memory is. So all those kind of constantly updating ideas, and it all but wipes that out. So your norepinephrine goes in there and it says, whatever you're thinking about right now, forget about it. And the idea, you can make sense. If you think about it in terms of a lion, that makes sense because if you're sitting there thinking about Justin Bieber and here comes a lion, the first thing your brain's going to want to do is say, stop thinking about Justin Bieber. Focus 100% on lion. So the same thing happens in a test. If you see it as a threat, anything you were thinking about, dates, names, ages, whatever the test is about, gone. So you can focus now 100% on the test. Now, the flip side of this is, okay, so you're nervous. Now you've, you've lost whatever you were thinking about. So you try and go into your deep memory to, to regain the thread. But you have another chemical that comes out during stress called cortisol, which all but sh- shuts off your access to your deep memories as well. So now you can't remember anything, and you're thinking, okay, I just need to think of something. But you can't access any of your deep memories either. So you kind of got this double whammy of nothingness. And now you're just sitting there totally blank sounds terrible nothing going on oh it's, it's it does sound terrible. but we, we've all experienced it have you ever walked into a, a room to go get something and as soon as you walk into that room you're like what the heck did i come in here for mm. that's the same thing or like you open the fridge and you're like what food did i want to get that's the same thing as that first part that's a working memory dump and so that's that same feeling that kind of kicks it off where whatever you were thinking about is now gone is there a threshold at which you kind of descend into that state? Because I've found, um, you know, from past experience that having kind of moderate levels of, of anxiety and stress going into an exam situation can be kind of helpful. You don't want to be too relaxed. You want to be kind of a little bit on edge and have your mind kind of firing as fast it can, as it can, which sometimes anxiety can, can help with or can Bingo. it? Oh, absolutely, yes. So there's a, an optimum level of anxiety that everyone needs. Because you, you think about it, if you go and do a test and you're 100% cool, like you are on a beach in the Bahamas, you're not going to do well on that test purely because you don't have that anxiety. So there's a, a small level of anxiety is totally fine and probably best in these situations. It's just, yeah, when it goes from stress level to threat level, so your body stops seeing it as, okay, here's something that's nerve-wracking but doable into something that is dangerous, is physically dangerous to me. And once it's interpreted as being dangerous, that's when the system just kind of shuts down and you're in a whole different world after that. So, it, so there is, yeah, it's, there's that one level. Once you go past it, there's no coming back. Yeah, so I'm interested in that. So if say it's happened to you before and you know that this is how you possibly could respond i suppose there's a way you can try and mitigate it and and prepare and avoid it but on the other hand if it's happened to you and maybe it's never happened to you before what on earth do you do if you've gone blank in an exam and you've got an hour and 20 can you recover in a short time or you know what i imagine once the reading part of the exam's done you panic more because you can't even remember what you've just read you could see it spiraling out. There is a way to get back on track, thank goodness. But it, it can spiral, and you could, you could totally imagine that, yeah, where it kicks in, and then you're worried about not being able to come back, which just makes it worse, and then you're thinking about making it worse, which makes it worse. So in order to stop that spiral, this is where all that kind of relaxation, mindfulness, CBT stuff comes in. So we, we tend to say that the first thing you do 
put your pen down, put your pencil down, put it away, give yourself about 10, 20 seconds of just breathing. And the whole idea is you need to calm down that stress response. You just need to get, it, get rid of it. So you're doing your breathing. Step two is to now pick a topic or a thought or something that you're working on and just start free writing. Just start going. It doesn't have to mean anything. It doesn't have to do anything. But the idea is now you're trying to kick the gears back in to say, okay, stress response is now gone. Now I'm just going to write some ideas. One of those ideas ideally will be the one to kick the string back on, like pull that right thread, and then you can get back into the groove. So the, the whole idea is the more you can kind of flow with it while it's happening, let it pass, calm it down, and then just kind of work your way back in, much better shot you have than trying to fight through it and saying, okay, I need to get this answer. I need to know this. So it's that relaxation at the beginning and then kind of free flow until you re-pick up the ideas and then you can go back in. How, how well do, do teachers and educators understand this process? Because I remember being at high school and there was a lot of emphasis at the high school I went to on, on doing well in your, your year 12 exams and a lot of stress put on how important they were and um, yeah. you know the kind of uh, assumption was if you didn't do well you were kind of doomed for the rest of your life but there wasn't really much concern for, for how to train yourself to perform well in ex- exams and, and mitigate those sorts of things that everyone's really afraid of. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it, not not just in schools, but I think overall, you go back to when we were in school, and, and this stuff kind of wasn't talked about. <laughs> things like stress, things like stress response, things like fear and mindfulness and breathing were all kind of fluff. And it was, you know, if you're good, you do it. If you're not, you don't. And I think we're seeing a big change in a lot of fields, especially education, where they're starting to acknowledge this more and say, okay is this the best stuff for our students to be putting all this much pressure on them, not helping them see what this all means in context and not giving them any coping strategies with it. So you, we, we do see this change where people are now working on mindfulness preparation and deep breathing. And another good thing we see too is, is the best way to avoid uh, a mind blank to begin with is exposure. The more you get used to something, the less threatening that thing is. So you see it in the military. You don't see soldiers training uh, for combat by playing video games or sitting in a room reading a book. They train in stressful situations. And the whole idea is that when they get into a real combat situation, they're not going to have this mind blank because they're kind of used to it. It's no longer threatening so much as it is just a normal, stressful, but recognizable situation. So we see a lot of schools now training students for when they prep for a test. It's no longer just, hey, go read this book while you're listening to your music or relaxing. It's come in, we're going to prep in the room that the test is going to be in, we're going to do practice tests, we're going to mimic the situation as closely as we can so that when you get there, it's not threatening. It's something that you've seen before, you can kind of get used to, and ideally that will stave off any chance of mind blanks. And Jared Horvath is with us and we're talking about the science behind mind blanks during the exams and this doesn't help anyone about to do a whole lot of exams, Jared, but when talking about exams... As, as a thing, are they the best yeah. way to assess knowledge at all? I mean, is this, is this a good uh, <laughs> indicator of, of a successful student? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> I'm going to make a lot of my colleagues mad. No, not in the least. <laughs> Testing is, is a very – it's a really good measure of very specific, narrow things. And it is a very poor measure of other things. Um, so you, you've got to kind of assume uh, th- th- testing in the current educational system, 
there's this big push now towards evidence-based practice, towards saying, okay, we need to measure our students' behaviors. We need to measure their achievement. And the easiest way to measure something is just to kind of give a test and say, okay, you got 90%, you got 80%. But if you think back to the history of education, those concepts are ultimately meaningless. Like, could you imagine Thomas Jefferson or, oh, I'm showing my American roots now, George Washington, who, <laughs> any old, let's say, Australian people, Flinders? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> there we go. go well, we, we famously had a, a Prime Minister in Paul Keating that, that only went about three years into high school, so there. Mm. It's perfect. So you've got these people who, if, if you were to tell them something like grades and ranking your students and being able to say, that kid's essay is 20% better than that kid's essay on physics, these people would say, what in the heck are you talking about? So these are modern constructs, this idea that we can quantify your knowledge into a number and then rank that against other people, as though that's something somehow meaningful. So we're kind of stuck in this loop where we think that that's all we can do, but there's a lot of other people now coming out saying, no, you can't quantify compassion. You can't quantify hard work. You can't rank somebody's desire to succeed. You can't test that stuff. So we're trying to come up with, and there's a lot of people pushing on the back now, what are additional ways we can assess not people's worth, but their desire to move forward in a field and push hard at it so that even if you bomb a test, it doesn't matter. That's not your end-all, be-all. That's just one measure of dozens of others. Because you can also see, I mean, the converse is there are some kids who are incredible at tests and they lack any emotional skill whatsoever, which is fine if you want to work at a computer for the rest of your life or in a wet lab like I do, unfortunately. But if you're trying to get into a field which is all about people like therapy or medicine or something, that's a skill that we just can't test for. And that's as important as that knowledge-based skill at this point. So there, there needs to be some sort of shift away from that hardcore testing, although that, that does serve its purpose, but into how do we measure these other things that we're really interested in as human beings as well. Well, it's all very interesting, Jared, and I hope that um, people out there listening who are about to take an exam might take some time out to study some relaxation techniques or, or mindfulness to help them get through, just in case it all kind of goes pear-shaped when they sit oh, down. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I always like to tell people, too, because it's pretty big here, is there's a whole life ahead of you. I didn't even get into what I'm into now until I was 26, 27. So it's really hard to see the forest through the trees at this stage. But this isn't the end of your life. It's, <laughs> the test is just a thing you do at this age. Sage advice. Thanks very much for coming on Triple R. No worries. Thank you guys for having me. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.